Hey church, I uh, just want to say hi again from here in Turkey. Uh, I'm speaking uh, within our kitchen. Uh, I actually sort of like speaking from the kitchen because the kitchen's sort of like the heart of the family. It's the heart of life. It's where you're fed. It's where you hang out after uh, a long night. It's where you're cleaning up the mess, but it's where things happen. Uh, in that same sense, I, I love speaking out of here because this is where things happen, where we come around the Word and we, we dig in and we sort of prepare and we, we come together, not just as people who are hanging out, but people who are providing for one another, people who are, are ready to walk into the rest of life. You know, the kitchen's a place where you always have the best conversations. You know, when you invite a new guest into your home, they come into the foyer maybe, and maybe uh, they're not even that good a guest, so they don't ever come beyond the foyer, and maybe uh, you get a a better guest or someone you get to know better and they come into your lounge room or your dining room if you have a separate dining room but it's really it's in the kitchen it's after everything is done and everyone puts their hands in the sink in a sense and starts to wash up and we discuss you know late at night uh, all the problems of the world and how we can solve them overnight if people that only listen to us uh, that's where we're at we're with the word we're in the kitchen uh, we're talking about what it is to live a divergent life you know, Jesus in John 18, 36 said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Now, I want you to pause there for a second because the whole of Divergent Church and its culture, its, its vision, its heart is birthed from this biblical idea that we are called to be a peculiar people, as First Peter tells us, a different people, a divergent people. We are not people who rise up in the way the world rises up. And I think it's unfortunate to say that uh, in our societies at times we see Christians actually respond in the same way the world does. Now, we put our emphasis and our hope on the power structures of this world. Yet, that's not what God calls us to. That's not what Jesus preached. That's not what Jesus uh, modeled to us. Rather, he modeled a kingdom that is beyond and above it all. That certainly works within it, but is not defined by it. Interestingly enough, recently I, I was reading about... Uh, Anarchism and uh, Nietzsche, of course, who said God is dead, compared uh, anarchists and Christians as essentially the same sort of people. The reason being, anarchists sort of argue that there should be no governmental authorities, at least as much as possible. And do you know what? As Christians, there's a level to which we're somewhat similar in that. Though we recognize governmental authorities, we recognize at the end of the day, there's a king above it all. And it doesn't matter what our governments do. It doesn't matter whether we agree with them or disagree with them. We know who's king and we know who we follow in every moment at all times. Maybe that'll get you in trouble with the government one day. I don't know, but can I tell you, it doesn't matter because we want to stand on the right side of history. We want to stand on the right side of Christ when he separates the sheep from the goats. That's the right place in history, by the way. At Jesus' right side. You know, I've been pondering uh, Jesus. It might sound like a, a, a funny thing to say, but the more I read his word, the more I think about the kingdom of God, the more I'm convinced that Jesus is actually even more unusual than I ever thought. 
I mean, even more unusual. Not in that absolute bizarre sense, but in the sense that God often, Jesus often does not meet my expectations. He's worthy of all honor, and yet he lays it aside because of love. You know, it's funny to hear Christians often say things like, God is all about his honor, and I actually sometimes think that Christians haven't got the memo. Philippians 2 tells us that God is not actually all about his honor, even though he's worthy of all honor. He laid it aside, came in flesh as Jesus, and that is our model for living. Not to live for our honor, but to lay it down to love others. You know, despite being God in flesh, Jesus seemed to dodge questions of his identity constantly. You know, in Sunday school, I remember uh, Jesus healing people and then he'd be like, hey, don't tell anyone. And as a Sunday school child, I was like, whoa, that's super weird. Like, why would you do that? And I would be like, hey, miss so-and-so, why does Jesus do that? And the answer would be like, well, maybe, uh, I don't know. Do you know what? Many, many years later, I still feel like to some degree I have the same question. But Jesus does this all the time. He often does not lead with his identity, but leads in a sense with his fruit, with his activity. The disciples have started following Jesus in Mark 4. And uh, they're going across the, the lake and there's a great storm, of course. And it goes crazy. The disciples freak out. They're, they're dread. Uh, comes over them with great fear. And it says this in verse 41, Jesus, by the way, calms the storm. He gets up. He commands the storm to be uh, quiet. And it says this, they, the disciples, were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves uh, obey him. You know, human kings demand affirmation of their identity with displays of grandeur and might, leading their names even with their titles. But Jesus leads with mercy, grace and truth. He shows us the the reality of his power and draws people in. You know, Isaiah 53 verse 2 prophetically reminds us that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should uh, that we should desire him. Yet in his death and in his uh, suffering, no one is more enticing and simultaneously confusing than Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who would come and literally miraculously seed himself in Mary's womb. Because Jesus, and there's something else to catch in this that I, I, we're not going there so much today, is absolutely secure in his identity. He knows who he is. He is God. He is the King of the universe. When you know who you truly are, you can lay aside your own pursuit of glory because your glory is is only sort of naturally comes to you. Honor comes to you, not because of the way you present yourself with your words or with title or with grandeur and power, but because you deserve it. You know, when we're secure in who we are, we don't need titles. Titles are useful for identification, but they're not useful for giving true honor. 
You know, the Jews were awaiting a military king as Messiah. They were waiting for an insurrectionist king who would overthrow the colonial imperialism of Rome. That would throw aside everything they had done. But he makes it clear that he's not going to fulfill the desires of the Jewish people. He's not like any other king they had known, experienced or expected. When Jesus was asked by Pilate, assuming that insurrectionist stance by Jesus, whether he were the king of the Jews, due to accusation from the religious leaders, he responded, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is not a king like that of this world. Uh, he's divergent from the attitudes, the activities and the, the actions that are natural in this world. His followers, because of this, are not concerned with the establishment of a new civil religious power that would enforce what is right by human means. Rather, God expresses his love and, yes, his sovereignty through Jesus. Jesus himself is the divergent king for a divergent kingdom. You know, in the next four weeks, you're going to be uh, venturing through the four greats that make up the mission of Divergent Church. Our mission being to make all in disciples devoted to his kingdom come. And the first one is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's our why. It's our passion. Jesus has not called us to some sort of reserved, balanced, suburban life. No, he's called us to be all in. And I'm going to be addressing this specifically today. He's called us to the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. That's our, that's our what. That's our what. The, the third grade is the great example from Acts 2, 42 through 47, where it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the gathering and the like. The point being, it's the great devotion, the great example that we have that we can follow in everyday life. And ultimately, we have the great vision of the kingdom of God in heaven in Revelation 7, 9 to 12. The every nation, tribe and tongue clothed in the white robes of righteousness and they're lifting up one name and that is Jesus. That's our great direction. That informs the way we see community as well in this day as we venture towards what God has for us. My kingdom, he says, is not of this world. Otherwise, my disciples would. You know, the truth of the matter is, if you want to be violent, it comes natural. This is not a political spectrum issue. People naturally lash out when they want things. They lash out with their mouths. They might lash out physically. They will do all these things. But Jesus actually points us to a crucial reality here. His disciples would not. You know, there is no clarity without contrast. If we don't look different than the world, then there's no clarity about who we are. All too often we are so concerned with being part of the world that we forget that we are not part of this world. We serve this world. We, we love this world, but we love it from the perspective of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our passion in all times, in all ways, everything we do stems from 
our love for the Lord. He is our passion. In Matthew 22, uh, 34 onwards, we see what is now known quite often as the great commandment. And it says this in verse 34, hearing that that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And I sort of love this. It might sound bizarre, but um, you constantly through the New Testament or the, uh, the Gospels see Jesus somewhat lay the smack down on someone. And you have this moment. It says, seeing that the, the Sadducees had been silenced by Jesus, the Pharisees sort of like rock up and they're like, OK, it's our go now. You know, it's like that little guy who, for some reason, sees some big guy knock someone over. And so with all his bravado, probably having had too much to drink, too much self-confidence, thinks he can take on the big guy and gets cleaned up. This is that moment. The Pharisees, they're they're full of bravado. They're full of their own self-righteousness. And they're like, come on, we can take Jesus down. Those Sadducees couldn't do it, but this is our turn. But Jesus is about to show them up again. For their empty religiosity. And he says this. One of the expert, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This quote actually is from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, verse 4, you can read it through verse 9 there. Uh, this is the greatest command. He says, now the second, which is not the same as the first, keep this in mind, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You know, at Divergent, we are all in. The great commandment is about being all in in our passion and devotion for Jesus. And when we are truly all in for Jesus, we will be all in in terms of the mission of God that he's called us to. God expressed his love in Jesus in going all in for us. You know, our world also all too often seems to uh, pursue balance. You know, the more I read scripture, the more I'm actually really confronted by the fact that scripture doesn't teach balance. It actually teaches absolute devotion and submission to Jesus. Jesus didn't make some long list of priorities. In Matthew 6.33 says, it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all those other things that are concerning you, all those things that worry you, Jesus will deal with them. You seek his kingdom. That means his kingdom. Kingly rule in every circumstance, in every decision, in every context, whether your workplace or your education or your relationships, is Jesus running reigning in these areas? That's Jesus is obsessed. Jesus has the right to be Lord of all in all moments. It's really important. In Luke 10, in response to this situation where the great commandment is given, the Pharisees immediately, or the Pharisee in responding to Jesus, immediately tries to meter his love for his neighbor. He tries to limit it. What? But who, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You know, it's interesting whether it's for God or for his kingdom or, or for our neighbor. We often try to meter it. Well... What does it really mean to be all in? You know, I can't, you, you don't want to be too extreme. You, you mean like dying for our faith? Well, why not? 
Jesus died for us. You don't want to be too extreme. If I follow Jesus too much, it might offend my family. Well, I don't know if you've read that moment where Mary, who is the one that had the, uh, the angel Gabriel appear to her, actually calls Jesus himself crazy. She thinks he's out of his mind with her family. Well, okay. Yep, Jesus promised that there'd be division between believers and their families. We often try to meet our intensity with our faith and our passion for God. But Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know, our reluctance to love our neighbor is not about the deficiency in our neighbor, but a deficiency in ourself. I want you to grab that because we often make excuses and that's what the Pharisee does here. He makes excuses or he implies excuses as to who really is his neighbor. Surely the Samaritan can't be his neighbor. Surely the Roman can't be his neighbor. Surely this guy or that girl can't be our neighbor that we should love because don't you know what they do? And the answer is yes. And God knows exactly what you do and he knows exactly what you're thinking and he still loved you. But I want you to keep on coming because in Luke 10, we actually see another interesting incident. So I actually think the the writer of Luke is really intentional and he, he goes here. In verse 38, it's Mary and Martha. You'll possibly know this story. It says this, as Jesus, verse 38, and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had come to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Note that, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Now, the funny thing is, I actually think most of us think we are Mary or Martha. Nearly all of us, sometimes we're like, I I just want to have a merry heart for Jesus. And some of us actually recognize that sometimes we get really caught up in the doing or the, the serving Jesus even. But can I tell you, I don't think, chances are, here's my observation, here's my consideration, chances are you are neither Martha nor Mary, you're Margot. And you're like, what? who, who is Margot? Now, you might not have heard this before, but... In my great and in-depth study, there's a third sister. Margot was actually sitting in the background. Margot is the middle sister. You know, the middle child. Margot's actually sitting in the background and she's, she's looking at Martha getting all fussed about everything. And she laughs at her somewhat to herself as she gleans on and she watches on thinking, man, she always has to be in control. Seriously, firstborns. She's looking at her and going, performance anxiety plus. Like, I know Jesus is here and Martha is freaking out. Margot's watching her and then she looks down and sure enough, there's her little sister, Mary. What in the world is she doing? She's placed herself right there in the center, right in front of Jesus, in front of all the men. Come on. Seriously, she always demands the attention. Have you noticed? You know, Margot's always noticed this because she's the the middle child. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, it's true. I'm a middle child. I look at both of these as crazy. Now, uh, I admit, Margot's not recorded in 
in scripture. But, but I want to challenge you as to whether you are actually a Margot. The one who sits back and you sort of look at those people. They've got their hands up and they're super intense at the front and they're desperate and you're like, oh, that's a little extreme. Or maybe you're watching those people scramble around, do everything, and you're like, whoa, performance anxiety, chill, people, chill. And then you sit back and go, didn't even get my name in the book. Did anyone see me? You know, the interesting thing is, it's in this context, in chapter 10, that Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We have a Mary sense and a Martha sense in the text. Most of us are not either or. We're actually Margot. Now, I don't know. Maybe there's a Margot in, uh, in church this morning or, uh, you know, whenever you're watching this. Do I mean you? Maybe. I don't know. But the point, the point is... That Jesus has called us to a place where we have an intensity for him, uh, an intensity to sit at his feet, to, to love him with our whole life, an intensity that loves him so much that the, our desire to sit at his feet will, be, will lead us to a place where we wish and we desire and we want nothing more than to be his hands and his feet and the world we live in. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a first and greatest commandment. It's important, and hear me in saying this, a great passion to sit at his feet will always lead to a passion to be his hands and feet. If we are all in as believers for Jesus, we will love the unbeliever. Can oh, I want you to catch just a couple of thoughts as I start to move towards wrapping this up. If you love him, you will recognize his kingship in all your life. There is, there is no partiality in Jesus' kingdom. Get in. Get, get in. Matthew 6.33, as I already said, makes this clear. Seek ye first the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things that are on your mind. Jesus will deal with them. Seek his kingship in every moment. You cannot say his Lord and then not, not consider his lordship in your work or in your, in your money or in your relationships. You know, that's the problem with Martha in that moment. She actually says with her mouth, Lord... And then she commands him as if the Lord was her servant. Lord, don't you know? You tell her. You know, often we're actually like that. We forget that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus, can I tell you, a Lord is a demanding person. He knows he has rule and reign. And yes, he's laid down everything for us. And so because of that, we should willingly and joyfully lay down our life for him. Remember, it's Romans uh, 10 verse 9 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul makes it absolutely clear in this passage that when we call Jesus Lord in this context, he's not just talking about some sort of demigod or prophet or powerful person. In quoting Isaiah in verse 16, he makes it absolutely clear that the Lord he's talking about, Jesus as Lord, is the Lord God. Jesus is not just your buddy. He's our king. 
He loves us and He will walk beside us. He will draw us close. But never, never make the mistake of forgetting that He is Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one who spoke the very world into existence. And He has given His all for you. And so, yes, He calls us to give our all for Him. If you love me, he says in John 14, 15, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, let's reverse that. If you don't obey his commandments, then you're showing that you don't really love him. Let that hang for a second. If you love him, as said, you'll recognize his kingship in all your life. If you love him, thought two is you will love your neighbor. That's the extension of it. It it overflows. It's the second most important commandment. And everything hangs on these two realities. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest. This is the main one. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. No mistakes. No confusion, no qualification, love your neighbor. Doesn't matter who they are. And thought three, you will love his bride, the church. Hear this, 1 Peter 1.22. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. The love that we have for God is reflected in his love for us. And us is the church. Us, the church, is his bride. And I've said it before. Even if you were to point out something that's possibly technically correct about my wife and you continued to do so, my bride, without consideration, you would eventually get a punch in the face. Let's not make any mistakes here. The bride is not perfect, but the bride is his. You will love the bride, the church. John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How will they know? Of course, you'll love your neighbor. But there is a special love that's found in the, in the church, in laying down a life for one another that shows people that we're not the same as the world. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life. How do we know that we have passed from death to life? Because we, and in context this is the church, because we love each other. Anyone who does not have love remains in death. This is how we know that we have uh, life. We love each other, the church. 1 Peter 2.9 actually says, but you are a chosen people. And I want you to really hear this. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Can I tell you, if you're listening and you are a believer, then you are you're a chosen and you're a special people. You are God's delight. The Apostle John is speaking, uh, or rather, he's writing and recording what the angel says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. 
the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 is a faithful church, a doctrinally strong church. Yet the angel says to the church, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are in life, but I know that Jesus, I know who Jesus is, and I know that he deserves our absolute adoration. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Maybe right now where you are, you need to repent. You've allowed the coals in your life to go dim. And you need to fan those. You need to, to blow on them. You need to, right in this moment, in a sense, turn uh, repentantly to the Holy Spirit and go, God, blow fresh on my life. Maybe you need someone to come beside you and pray for you and walk with you. Maybe you need to even confess this sin to a brother or sister that you may be healed, that you may be brought close to what Jesus has called you to. Maybe you need to repent of just seeking the balanced life. When Jesus has called you to throw yourself and your life into the deep with him. Because you can trust him. Maybe you've just grown dull. And the journey is long. Today you can turn from such. Repent and love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you right now for every person that is watching us whenever, wherever they are. Lord, we know it's so easy to get dull, to be distracted like Martha. Lord, we know what it is to just take our eyes off the prize and put it on the circumstances. So Lord, right now we do repent of losing our first love. Lord, blow on the coals of our faith. Lord, we repent and we turn to you and we cry out to you because you are deserving of all our love and all our desire and all our life. And Lord, we commit, Lord, as individuals, as families, Lord, as a community, to seeking first your kingdom, your rule and your reign and your righteousness, your true ways in every single circumstance and context in our life. Lord, have your way. You are our king. Amen. Amen. Uh, we love you guys. And uh, you know, maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need advice. That's why the church exists. Come together, pray together, uh, and be the church. God bless you guys.